Today's edition of the podcast is brought to you by CoachMe Plus. CoachMe Plus is the leader in athlete management software and a product that I've been lucky enough to be using for a little over a year now. Only rivaled by the impeccable customer service that Kevin and his staff provides, CoachMe Plus's ability to constantly be amoeba-like in their ability to mold and, and matriculate what you're trying to get across and bring together is, is absolutely fantastic. Their constant pursuit of better ways and better methods and, and innovations and progress to their own product is absolutely fantastic. Go over to CoachMePlus.com. Check out what they got, guys. It's, uh, it's something that I guarantee you won't be disappointed with. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I get the pleasure of sitting down and talking training with Chris Corfist. And guys, we're going to talk about how he's taken different ideas from different people, ranging from DB Hammer and Cal Dietz and his past football experiences, and really manipulated his own training program based on what he has seen when it comes to translation to track and field performance. Some really, really awesome stuff. And speaking of Cal Dietz, Chris is a partner with Cal and JL Holdsworth with the RPR system. So of course, we can't go without talking about RPR, where he sees it fitting, and all those things. It's really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Chris, thanks for being on with us today, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So, Chris, it's a pleasure. Yes, and you have a very interesting background when it comes to being a, a successful track coach and working with American football. And I think that what would be really interesting to the people that listen, you know, on the regular here with us is what do you see as a guy who works in both track and football that, that shows up and, and actually matters when it comes to getting kids to perform better? Sure. Well, I kind of, it's, you have it backwards. I'm a football coach that became a track coach. Okay. So that's kind of how it started. I was, uh, you know, growing up, I, I didn't run track in high school. I, I lie. I, I ran my freshman year and I was a high hurdler and this is back in the cinders days and I spent more time pulling cinders out of my body than, than getting over hurdles. And it was just a task to finish the race. Uh, but I was always been, you know, interested in improving my speed and I would listen to someone and they wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't happen. Uh, you know, squat 500 pounds that, you know, that seemed to be the magic number back in the day. And, you know, you get that number and then it's not happening. Um, so as I progressed through the ranks, you know, I played football in college and I was a GA, uh, at Northern Illinois and I worked with the football team there. Uh, I went into high school and I was a football coach that ran the strength program and my second year there the head football coach slash athletic director called me into office and said hey you're the new track coach I said well I guess we're going to just go start squatting and cleaning and doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing and uh, I wasn't winning and that's I don't like that so I started exploring other modes and methods and techniques and things like that to, uh, to win track races. And so I was both coaching football and track for 12 years. And the head football coach's idea is he wanted to meld those two programs together into 
one where it's kind of like off-season football training during track where you're working on speed. And as I started getting more success on the track, uh, we started winning a lot more football games to the point where we would lose maybe one or two games a year. And it wasn't supposed to happen because where I coached and teach was uh, upper class high school where we were really good at country club sports and we weren't supposed to be fast. Uh, but yet we were getting thirds and fourths in the four by ones at the state track meet. And so that's kind of where I got that. that that's where it started to branch off when the head football coach slash AD retired and they brought in a new football coach whose goal was there's no more track. There's no more running. We're just going to be in the weight room and that's how we're going to win games. And I said, well, I'm not doing that. You know, I know it's winning games for us. Um, so I quit. I went to another school uh, where we had an incredible amount of success, and I just did track. But at the same time, I opened up my own gym, and everyone knows my own gym is really my basement. You know, I've got all kinds of crazy stuff in my basement, my driveway, and my street. It's all marked out. And started training the football players from the old, from my old school that would come and train with me because they still wanted to be fast, and then other people started coming as well. So that I kind of... I'm not truly a track coach. I became a track coach. I'm really a football guy at heart. Um, so as I progressed to answer your question, not, and I'm getting your question now, so I'm sorry for the, the tangent there. No, I love uh, it. Uh, so kind of where stuff that I think is important that I can see it carry over into both, um, I think my base exercise would be an isometric split squat. Um, and there's two ways you do it. Uh, you can do the 30-second hold way, which is kind of the way we start out, just so you can get to be in that position and be a little uncomfortable. Uh, and then we progress to the Caldeets, five seconds down, or down fast and hold for five seconds. So we start dabbling into the triphasic stuff. To me, that is one exercise that I have seen that, regardless of whatever sport you play, basketball, track, football, field hockey, that has a good carryover into acceleration in some top-end sprint mechanics. The guys that, I, that progress in that lift uh, get faster. And for me, and probably like you somewhat, you're in Southern Virginia, right? You're yeah, in right in the middle. Yeah, right in the middle. So it's warmer there than here. Yeah, a little bit. Um, a little bit. Yeah. You know, and that works for me in the wintertime because we can't get out and run here in the wintertime. Um, I wish global warming would come back and wipe away January and February so we could get out and run, but it hasn't been that way for a while. So, you know, I kind of got stuck where I had to find something that was worthwhile because I didn't want to waste people's time and say, why don't you just come hang out with me for a couple months down in the basement? We'll screw around a little bit and we'll do some crazy stuff. And then hopefully it comes out at the back end because at the same time, while I've got these clients coming in, I also have a team that I'm responsible for. And, you know, they have expectations. I have expectations and I, I can't waste two months, you know, wasting time and then just expect it to happen when you get on the track. You know, I, I, I needed to find things that had some carryover. And so for me, uh, ISO split squat, you know, whether you have one foot back, one foot up, you know, you can do all kinds of variations. Uh, that was really important. And I think, just as important is the technique that you use to get down in that position. Um, the way I coach it is someone's pulling your knee forward, and when that knee can't go any further forward, someone pushes your hip back. 
And so when you sit down into that position, uh, that ankle locks in, uh, and you'll feel all the pressure go right into your butt and your hamstring. And so an easy way to coach that from the side, if you're watching from the side, uh, are the shins and spine parallel. And I think there's variations on that. Like you can push your chest over the knee to get more hamstring, but someone who's weak is going to break somewhere in the torso and they can't hold that position at all. So I guess we're kind of training to a position, uh, to a finished position of some sort. So that was, that's certainly one thing that has had great carryover for us. Um, another thing for me is we do a lot of lateral hip strength. Uh, I don't care what sport you're in, if you're crossing over or that foot's coming, you're running a tightrope, whether you're accelerating, especially when you're accelerating, or top end speed, you cannot have, you can't run a tightrope. So if, if I'm stuck down in the basement, I have a four-way hip machine. Um, we do a lot of stuff sideways on a Swiss ball. Um, we'll change that environment and uh, we'll put a rubber band around your shoulder and you got to drive up through your big toe. But if you can't lock that hip in and hold that leg in place, you're never going to run fast. And that carries over into agility runs as well. If you're hitting middle when you go to cut, it's going to take a lot of time for your body to reposition so that ankle can actually push. So, again, we want some really strong lateral strength so we can put that foot down, make a cut, and it can stay on the outside of our frame and get a, a quicker push. I love this. So let's take two steps back really quick because Cal Dietz is a friend of both of ours. When you talk about this split squat and you work in the, into it to the triphasic after you get through the 30-second holds, do you right. follow it like by the book? Uh, it matters how many people I have. If I'm doing an individual, um, we're going to go a lot of different ways. Uh, if I have a group, like I have football teams that I train, um, I'm staying to I'm staying to triphasic um, for a group setting. I think that that's gold. I mean, when I read Cal's book, I didn't even know Cal. I just read it and I thought, wow, that's probably one of the best books I've read on strength training. And then he called up. This is kind of embarrassing. Uh, he called up to ask about RPR, and I go, "Is this Cal Dietz like the Cal Dietz that wrote triphasic training?" <laughs> <laughs> and now I know Cal really well, and I think, boy, that was a really stupid thing for me to say. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great program. And that's kind of why we wrote Triphasic Training for Football is because Cal wanted to have uh, more of a speed element to what he was doing. And so that's why we wrote that book. Uh, it's got elements of triphasic, true triphasic, and a lot of what I do develop speed and agility. Yeah, and you know what? That... I've read the article, I heard you talk about it with Joel, and I, and I love the whole idea of, you know, if you want to be faster, maybe squatting is not the way to go. Yeah. And, and you give a lot of really good alternatives. Yeah. Um, but you still have old school, you know, you got to be squatting. And the problem is, in a team setting, especially in a high school team setting, uh, you don't have eyes everywhere. And sometimes kids come in there and they're getting slower by their really bad technique. Um, and it, it's just not enough bang for the buck for me. Um, and I'll even have parents come in and say, well, why aren't you squatting? You know, some business guy and say, you really want to have this conversation with me? Okay, let's sit down. Let's talk about squatting if you want to talk, if you want to talk training. Um, 
and then they 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 back off because you know you start you throw up one thing oh well 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 this is how I did in high school well it's not 1983 anymore you know the bigger faster stronger poster isn't up in the weight room anymore um, if if your goal is speed then then we need to run and we need to have exercises that have a better impact more bang for your buck for for where you want to get to I think JL at our track football consortium last month, JL Holdsworth came and did a presentation on the squat. And it was, it was great because he questioned, you know, why are we using standards set by three guys back in the 1960s in Missouri to measure how we're doing our, our sport or how we're, how we're, how we're working here. Um, you know, maybe it's time to change. Maybe we need to bend the ankle. Uh, and he, he had a good point. He goes, nobody's done more squatting here than me. You know, I've squatted over a thousand pounds. You know, I've got, I broke my back doing it. You know, I've got a lot in, I've got a lot in this and I love powerlifting. I love squatting, but I also run a business and I got to have repeat customers. I got to have people coming back in. Uh, So it's time to change. And I think when JL said that, um, of course, people went, got angry and and all that. And, you know, JL's a traitor, you know, all the, the typical responses that people will have when, you know, you've insulted uh, someone's exercise, which almost becomes a religion. Yeah. But, but, but what people forget, it's just an exercise. It's just an exercise. It's not a way of life. It's, it, it can be if you make it that. But if you want to get people from point A to B faster, I don't think it's the best way. Yeah, it's funny. You know, with, the, with divorce rates at like 50% in this country, <laughs> people marry exercises and they go to war for them. Um, yeah. You know, I've learned more than I could ever imagine from Dr. Yesis, and he's talked about like, kind of like the joke of depth, um, yeah, forever. And you know, Brian Mann talked about at the seminar this weekend. You know, like the reason we we have all these lifts and do all these things is because all strength coaches were either weightlifters, powerlifters, or bodybuilders. Yeah. So they all look at it that way. And I've never thought of it like that. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. And and it's true. And, you know, these people have squatted their whole life and they love to squat or clean or whatever their lift is. And it's hard to separate from that because you I think people have a hard time admitting that they may have been wrong for a while. Yeah. I admit I admit I'm wrong all the time. You know, I screw up every day. That's why I'm constantly changing things as I look at stuff and, you know, with all the equipment I have, I, I get numbers back, you know, whether I'm on the 1080 or whatever, I'm thinking, this is bad. I, this isn't going the right way. I got to change what I'm doing here. Um, you know, good point is, you know, I mentioned earlier about, you know, you got to be wide when you, when you accelerate. And so on, on the 1080, you know, you have people that come out of the blocks or out of their stance or whatever position they're in. And if they're running the tightrope, they're going to drop their power output by about 30 to 40% just by their, their width of their first three steps. And it, to me, that's, that's shocking. And, you know, until I was sitting behind, I, I sit on the 1080 so it doesn't move when we go heavy because I don't have it anchored. I, I move it around everywhere. And so I'm staring at people's asses all, all day <laughs> watching them go. And then I'm starting to realize, hey, the guys that step wide when they accelerate, they're generating a lot of power. They're generating a lot of distance. They're getting great projection. That's something I never thought of before. Um, 
so again, just by sitting and watching and not being married to things and seeing what's going on, you got to make changes. And again, it's just an exercise. You can, or you can tell people, you know what, I learned something new and we're getting better. And I don't think people have a problem and say, hey, I'm working to get better here. You know, they'll, they'll move along with you if they believe in what you're doing. Oh, no doubt about it. And, and that's kind of funny, too, because that's another thing that a lot of coaches would would probably teach a different way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there's good research that just came out a month, uh, beginning of the summer. Uh, Japanese guy, Nagahara, uh, I think is his last name, and did a whole thing on stride width for up to 80 meters and your fast guys and fast guys are sub 10 five uh their stride width for the first first three steps is 13 inches apart wow. and when you think about that we, we we sometimes put kids getting ready for their 40 yard dash you know they're almost on a tightrope one foot's you know side by side or at least centrally located underneath their hip and what a disadvantage to put them at because now they've got to step out wide and they're creating a diagonal force instead of getting a little wider stance and pushing out. And, you know, it's kind of funny. You go along with tradition, you look at stride block or sprint blocks in the cheap ones, how narrow they are, you know, maybe because when they dug the holes back in the 1930s, yeah. they made them narrow. I don't know why they do that. Or it's a lot cheaper. You use a lot less material to build something that narrow so you can sell them cheaper and schools are cheap. But, you know, that's one of the big discoveries this summer is that that width when you come out of a hole, and I don't care if it's 2.3 point, 4 point, is vital to generating a lot of power and a lot of velocity early on. No, yeah, and, and being a football guy, I mean, that three-step velocity is it's you know, huge. Oh, God, yes. Uh, you go to some of these camps, and uh, we had some guys – I did a cool thing with Ken Clark this summer on overspeed training, um, and we had some really good big-time Division One players come in, and they didn't hit great times like our elite sprinters did in their flies, uh, but their first three steps from any position was was really impressive. And, and really, that's what you, that's what you need um, because that's what gets your feet in place so you don't have to step out in front, right? and your better balance is that initial push. Yeah. Now, I'm going to piggyback off something that you talked with Joel the last time you were on Just Fly. Sure. Um, because a lot of people, to, to kind of to go against another thing that a lot of coaches do, A skips, B skips, C skips. Mm-hmm. And how you've gone away from those and some things that you're implementing that you're seeing success with as opposed to the, as, as I'm air quoting right now, traditional track exercises that strength coaches would look at. Right. So I tried A skips and B skips. I've seen Lauren Seagrave speak. I've seen Kevin O'Donnell speak. Uh, I bought all the videos. And back in the mid-90s, my guys could do the do them like in the video. We could line up and look great. You could hear us coming because we were all perfectly in sync. And it was quite a, quite a spectacle. But when we got on the track... It didn't seem to carry over. You know, I didn't see a pawing action uh, when they were sprinting in a B skip. You got to be really cruising, really cruising to get that paw action. 
And part of that pi action is because of the velocity that you've created in your acceleration that allows for that to happen. But to drill it, it, it made no sense to me. And it, with an A skip, there's no real target in what you're doing. Um, it's just a skip. And it's a, it's a nice coordination skip. But again, I just didn't see it happening for my team. And so even though we spent years drilling it and I had cool techniques and stuff like that, I had to get rid of it because I wasn't getting any bang for my buck. And so kind of the progression is we went to just doing stiff-legged runs as a warm-up, and that works pretty well. Um, but still, I, I was missing a coordination aspect. And so we kind of, I kind of got into the Franz Bosch drills. And I like those a lot better because there's a target that athletes can reach for. Um, there's good scissoring action. It, it's got all of the attractors in movement that you're working for. Um, and ideally, it's that finished position with that hip high, uh, where that hip is supporting your body weight and that knee is up. And so you constantly drill that finished position as you're moving. And what I have found this summer, uh, you know, this is kind of crazy. This is, I get bored. Um, I, st I started dragging people on my 1080 and doing overspeed with drills. And, uh, and it works really well. <laughs> it works really well. Because I'm changing the environment, um, and your body has to get ready for that contact faster so it gets your body into a better position. Uh, I've got video. I've got articles that I've got that I'm working on. Uh, change foot contact patterns, uh, toe-off patterns, um, all kinds of stuff just by making things happen faster. Because if you go to a bad or a poor pattern, uh, you're going to fall and you know you're going to fall and you're and you're moving fast. So you've got to be in that perfect position. Uh, I couldn't do that with an A skip or a B skip. It would just be the same. In fact, it would you would probably slow the machine down because it's just not something that we really do when we sprint. Uh, so, yes, I've gotten away from them. I didn't get any bang for buck for them. Uh, so I've I've got these drills that I use now. I call them boom booms. Um, that's one series. And then. Some of them are a lot of lateral hip stuff where you're really asking the lateral hip to do a lot in bad positions. So when you sprint, it's going to be more natural to get that foot underneath. You're challenging and you're learning where to put that foot. So now what, what drills are you looking at? So if you could break down the boom boom drill and then what other drills are you doing uh, in the overspeed stuff? Hawkins spent a whole bunch of time talking about that this weekend too. So this is, this is pretty neat right now for me. So, so my, this is going to sound crazy. So I have knee-high hurdles that I make out of PVC. And I put them, I actually challenge how far I can pull them apart. And so you get one skip in between each hurdle. And so as you step over this hurdle, you're getting dragged. And on that skip, it's kind of like a triple jump almost. If you don't absorb all that energy when you come down, you're going to miss that next hurdle. So that next hurdle is your target that you've got to get to. So you're teaching that hip to stiffen up when you hit the ground, and they almost learn how to bounce across while going over these hurdles. Um, and then to challenge them more, I'll put their hands up over their head. I'll have them carry a crowbar or a curl bar. Um, and now we're starting to do co-contraction twists into the, into the knee that's coming up. And that's worked really well. Um, so that's one drill we do. Uh, another drill 
and it's really simple and you don't need a 1080 to do this because uh, I'm always trying to find things for coaches that they can use because not everyone's stupid and not stupid, but uh, willing to put the money out to buy a 1080 and has a wife that lets them do that. Actually, she just does not look ever to see what I have coming and going. Um, I'm pulling people over mini hurdles and that's been incredibly effective. Uh, and we're only getting about five hurdles in. So for the person who doesn't have a 1080 or I love Hawkins machine. Um, yeah. I've emailed them about it before. Uh, I put together about five or six jump stretch bands and I'll give you a good pull. And that's, that seems to be enough to generate that same speed that you're getting pulled with the 1080 to come over the hurdles. And what happens when you get pulled over the hurdles is again, if your foot isn't perfect, you're going to fall. And the mini hurdle marks is a target that you've got to get over. And I think when you go a little bit faster, and it's just a little bit faster, uh, you're you're going to make that hurdle. And so you've got to be perfect every time. Um, I've had, I know this is weird, but I've had a string of distance runners that have started doing it this summer, and they're getting these incredible PRs in their runs. Uh, and everyone's asking, "What are you doing?" And they say, "Well." I'm getting dragged over hurdles. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, this guy's got this machine and it pulls me and uh, I got to go over really fast. And then it just seems to carry over when, when you run. And again, that, that's something I'm always looking for is what's the carryover from the exercise to when I actually go out and watch you run. Uh, is it working? If it's working, I should see, I should see some effect right away. Uh, as you go out, there's going to be some potentiation to, to carry over. Uh, so that's one thing I'm looking for. Um, and again, there should be long-term uh, stuff. This stuff we did with Ken Clark this summer, um, it was about a, three weeks ago, I think, beginning of, right after 4th of July. Uh, we were doing overspeed testing. We had all kinds of cameras and radar gun and the 1080, and we're getting all these measurements, which Ken is going to present later. It's pretty wild stuff. Um, the kids, we had some track clubs come where these kids run 10-4, 10-5. Uh, they're some of the best sprinters. Uh, we had Division three guy that, that's a 10-3 guy. But the kids that came on a Thursday, they had a meet on a Saturday, a national qualifier at Northern Illinois University. And I dragged them. They only got two poles. We dragged them. Uh, and I know Akin talks about 3%. It's hard to find that 3%. We were pulling them between 7 and 10% over their speed. But what our video shows, uh, and Ken's got this camera that does 950 frames per second, wow. that there was very little change uh, in body position at that 7 to 10% speed, which is what we want. But ground contact time was greatly improved. And if you look at his algorithm uh, on how to generate force, you know, you're putting more out. In fact, you can read that on the 1080 that when you're dragging people, if you're dragging them right, they're putting out some serious power when you're dragging them at the right speed. So these kids go out on Saturday. Everyone runs a PR. Some people PR'd by as much as a, uh, a half a second in a 200-meter dash. Wow. This kid ran 21-1. <laughs> Not a football player, though, but he's a track dude. I mean, he was state champion in the 100-meter dash and 200-meter dash three months ago, but he beat that time. And there's, I think there's a big difference between being at the state track meet where there's 
25,000 people and being at a national qualifier at Northern Illinois out in the middle of the cornfields. And there's maybe 50 people in the stands at 7 a.m. in the morning. And he still, these kids still went out and they smashed all the records. You're telling me a 10-5 kid just popped off a 21-1? Yeah. 10-4 kid. 21-1-2. But he held his 100. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he ran his 100 at 7 a.m. in the morning. That's crazy to me, though. Yeah, he ran 10-4-8 at 7 a.m. He ran 10-4-1 at the state state prelims with thousands of people there at 3.30 in the afternoon. And then came back later that afternoon and ran 21-1-2 when he won state with 21-6. So these articles that you guys are putting out, where are people going to be able to find them? Um, I've got some on Simply Faster, but I think we're going to start to print more on Track Football Consortium, uh, which is uh, Tony Hollermeyer's web webpage for our biannual clinic, kind of like what you run which I haven't been to yet. I'm going to make it one of these times um, where we invite people in to speak. Uh, we've had Stuart McMillan from Altus. Um, we've got all kinds of people that come and go. Uh, the bulk of it are high school coaches that oh, Cal comes every time. Cal's always good and Cal's great. Uh, but we try and make it a lot of high school coaches who have had a lot of success to share with other high school coaches. Because it's one thing if you get to work with guys that run 10 flat, 9-9 nine, nine and all that. I think high school coaches want to make their 11-3 a 10-9 and, you know, their, their kid that runs 4-7, bring them down to 4-5 and stuff like that. You know, more realistic everyday stuff is kind of what we're looking for. And we're, we're, our goal is to try and get more two-sport athletes where kids run track and play football or play basketball and run track. Uh, I think that's this idea of specialization is probably one of the worst things that's happened to sports here in the United States. We don't have athletes anymore. No, no, we don't. <laughs> and I, I can tell you that on a, from seeing it on a daily basis uh, yeah. at college. But, yeah, it's, uh, we've got a lot of kids that are specialized early. Well, we're going to definitely make sure we put a connection to both of those because, um, you know, Chris is an awesome guy, and they do great things at Simply Faster. And, you know, talking with Calvin, always hear great things about what you guys are doing with, with the talks up there, up north. And uh, I think that since we've mentioned him and yours and his relationship a few times, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about those three letters that everybody's talking about right now. <laughs> and, and that's RPR a little bit. So uh, Brajesh was on about a month ago talking about it. Um, I guess my main question about it, Chris, just to be simple, is like, how'd you guys come up with all this? Uh, we didn't. It's not ours. Uh, Douglas Hill, it's, uh, it's B activated. So I think seven years ago, uh, my friend Dan Fichter and I were both always deep in some wormhole trying to learn new stuff. Uh, he's a football track coach up in Rochester, New York. Where and, in Rochester? Uh, Arondequoit. Oh, no way. That's where my parents graduated from. Yeah. He's an Arondequoit yeah. guy. I grew up in upstate New York. Yeah, it's a nice place. Uh, underrated, in my opinion, completely underrated as a place to live. Uh, 
you the, food's, up, the food's not great there, but you brought up global warming, and it's it's kind of why I still live in Richmond and not in Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> it does snow constantly in Rochester and Buffalo. It's just the degree of snow that's coming down. Facts, facts. <laughs> but yeah, I digress. Go back to your story. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Dan went to London to see Douglas. Uh, not really sure what was going on, and had this is back. You know, you couldn't text like on a cell phone type thing. It was, you know, a flip phone type thing. And he's trying to explain to me on the flip phone what's going on. He's too cheap to make the phone call, I guess. But he, he faxed me a diagram of the points to press on. And I said, all right, I'll try it. And so some, I had some client come over and I said, hey, lay down. Let me try this on you. I'm just going to press on you in some places. I want to see what happens. And it, 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 it worked. I'm like, wow, this is kind of nuts. So... Dan and I brought Douglas out to do a seminar here in Chicago. We had about 30 people on our first one. And he taught the whole system. And again, it's mind-blowing. Uh, it's When it happens to you for the first time and you, you get reset for the first time, you go out. Like I went out and I sprinted. I went out into the street and I sprinted because I felt like I was 18 again. Uh, so from that point, we kept inviting Douglas back. And eventually Cal came and we kind of got to a point where we were getting slowed down because Douglas only came to the States once or twice a year. And we were having trouble with trainers and people saying you're treating people. And that's when JL came to a seminar up in Minneapolis and uh, was blown away. And of course there's the Dave Tate story and all the West side guys that have been reset. And uh, we said to Douglas, Hey, we want to carry this on, but we're kind of getting pulled back because you're not here. Can we teach this and move on with it and rebrand it and change the scope and make it more for coaches, make it a bigger entry point because Douglas's courses were kind of expensive uh, and for two days. And we said, I said, I can do this in a day and we can cut the price in half so we can get a lot more young coaches in because a young coach does not make a lot of money. Um, but yet we want to share this with people. And so about a year ago, uh, Cal and I went out to Columbus to JL's place and we held our first, we taught it for the first time. And that's where JL came up with the idea of RPR. And if the four of us are all in business together. Um, Douglas is kind of like the silent partner and uh, the three of us run it. And uh, it's taken off from there. I, you know, I think... In the powerlifting world, JL has a pretty good voice in that. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. He's a smart dude. Uh, in strength training, weightlifting world, Cal is you know one of the leaders. And I'm a high school track coach, so I can talk to the high school people because some of the other coaches don't want to have anything to do with a high school guy. So I kind of cover that base. And so from there, we've been pushing it. Um, we're running clinics. Uh, we just opened up a level two. Uh, we've taught, I taught the first level two. Cal's doing one this weekend, which was really kind of mind blowing stuff. Kenna Smoke, she's the strength coach, a strength coach at West Point. She wrote a great uh, overview of what happened at level two. Um, and we're building on it. We have RPR Neuro coming, where it works with vision and hearing, vestibular system and colors. Uh, again, we're, we're just trying to peel back the layers of what it takes to be an elite athlete and get people there easier. Uh, we're also coming up with an RPR warm-up uh, where we're going to apply the reset points with some neurologic movements to really get the body tuned up 
you know, so we know you're doing great movement patterns instead of doing a warm-up and you're not really sure what's going on. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, we're trying to find places down south and out on the west coast to run it. Uh, but in the Midwest, it's big. Uh, in Illinois, it's really big. Uh, I would say a good 20-25% of the track teams in the state of Illinois use it. Uh, down at the state track meet, there are over a dozen tables out with coaches resetting their athletes. But what's even greater about it is the fact that you can have athletes be responsible for themselves and reset themselves. There's a lot of modalities out there uh, that you need someone to press on you. I think RPR is one of the few ones that you can reset yourself. And that's, it's empowering to be able to take care of yourself. Or you can, I have, I teach my teams how to do it. And I have teammates take care of teammates, which is what you want. I mean, that's responsibility. That's, you know, creating a bond. Um, you're responsible for your guy, your teammate, your, your buddy, your partner. And I guess, So that's kind of where we're at. No, yeah. And that's really cool stuff. And I think, though, one thing I would want to ask when it comes to that is what are some, like, FAQs you get or some misconceptions that people bring to you about RPR that, that you're just kind of, like, either over-answering or, or you hear quite often um, just to kind of clear the air a bit? Well, I think everyone looks for research. Well, where's, what's the research behind it? Well, there isn't any. Doug's a South African surfer who doesn't care about research. It works. That's all we care about. So as the three of us are coaches in, in, in the realm that we're in, you know, we're not looking for research either because I can put you on the table and, and reset you and you're going to get up and say, I feel awesome. I, I haven't felt like this in years. Look, my shoulder works, my, my hip works. I, I don't know why we have to do research to do that. You know, what percent do you feel better? Do we have to get out the happy faces and you move your happy face to where you are on a on a scale to see how you feel after this? I mean, here, let me let me do one spot and tell me if you feel better. And, and that's really what it's about. Uh, and if we have an athlete that feels better and they feel stronger and they feel light, that's what I want. I want an I want to put my athlete out on the field that feels invincible, not one that has to worry about a concussion or all the scare stuff that goes on out there. Or I don't want to blow my ACL. Uh, I don't want to turn my ankle. If you go out and feel invincible, I you're going to play better and you're going to have less chance of injury just from that mental mindset alone. But realistically, if you go through the muscle test and all that, your body truly is stronger and you feel different when you move and you feel more stable. And uh, we have the teams that I have worked with, we have had a drastic decrease in injuries, a drastic decrease in injuries. Uh, yeah, I'm a high school teacher and, you know, one of the things for me is five minutes before the bell rings, I call it a uh, passing period of broken dreams because all the kids come out with their sprained ankle, their blown ACL, whatever they've got going on, and they've got their mule, their friend that carries their book bag. And to me, that's heartbreaking because a lot of these kids work really hard to get where they're at. Uh, there's a lot of expectations. You know, the, the magical college scholarship is always dangling out there with parents and things like that. Uh, and I'm watching it like, this is horrible. We've got to do something to, to stop this. We've got to do something where kids can go through their four years in high school and not have to go see an orthopedic surgeon and go through the 
whatever injury thing and take four to six months out of your life and have to worry about that the rest of your life, whether it's the scar on your knee or it never really feels right and stuff like that. So from a high school perspective, a high school coach perspective, that's kind of what we're shooting at there. If we can give kids something to empower them, to make them feel, to make them be healthier and more injury free, you got to do it. You got to do it. I'm not here to make sure the orthopedic surgeon drives the newest Mercedes. I'm here to make sure kids have a great four years in high school in athletics. No, yeah, I, I've had one experience with it, and Cal threw me on the floor, almost literally, <laughs> um, in the exhibit hall at NSCA National. Um, was, He's not afraid to throw anyone on the floor. Oh, I mean, he, no. He's he doesn't not. care where it happens either. That, that is, there's never been a truer statement in the history of man than <laughs> what you just said there. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Interesting enough that we're actually, like, looking to bring, you know, one of you guys in to, to go through it. Because it's, uh, I, this is going to sound really weird to anyone listening who hasn't been through it. But Cal just looked at me like I was just asking him how the weather was. When, when he was done, I felt like I was taller. Yeah, because your body's not imploding anymore. Uh, our body protects itself. You have various stages of fight or flight, and you implode. I mean, you bring your ribcage down to your hips. You're protecting your organs, all that stuff. And what RPR does is it gets your body to explode where you, you can separate. And once you separate, you can have range of motion in your torso or you can twist. And really, rotation is really one of the things that separates us from even pr other primates. You don't see a chimpanzee rotating and throwing stuff. I mean, they're, they're arm throwers when they throw their poop and stuff like that. Uh, we rotate, but with all the core stuff that we do, where we're constantly driving our ribcage to our hips, we lose our rotational aspect. It's interesting. But no, I, it, was, it was very eye-opening. It was very um, question-inducing <laughs> to the point where I wanted to do it again, and it was it was really kind of an uncomfortable situation. To, it uh, is. There's some pressure involved. Yeah. Um, but the funny thing is, even though Cal's a big guy, he's really not pressing that hard. The, the reset points are defensive points, and so your body knows that that's not working, so it's going to try and protect that, and it's going to give you a pain signal. You know, it's kind of that a little along the lines of the polyvagral stuff. Um, so if you take something that's reset and you press on the same spot, they don't feel it. But someone who's not there, you know, someone who's what we would say off, uh, it's going to hurt. It, there's there's some pressure involved there. And, and I'm sure Cal probably started screwing around and may have pressed a little harder than he normally would have just to get some kind of response. Oh, and then response. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's uh, it's one of those things. But like you said, when you get up, I don't know. I have never had some. Well, I've had one person that get up and says, "I don't feel anything." You know, then that's your process. That's great that you don't feel anything, but you test stronger, and, and that's good. Um, but most everyone gets up and it's like, "Wow, what what just happened here?" You've I feel completely different. Look, I can touch my toes. I can twist. I can take my arm and wrap it around my head. I, I haven't been able to do that for years. Yeah. And again, we're not treating anything. We're not performing any kind of therapy. 
we're just letting the body know that it can use the muscles that it should. And once you do that, the body, the brain gives the muscles length and allows it to move freely. It doesn't have to protect anymore. No, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And, and Chris, I think that's an, off, an awesome spot to leave it at, man, because I think this is something that people need to look into more. I, I think that all the things we talked about today are things that we as coaches need to take a bigger look at when it comes to why we're actually programming what we're programming and what the results are actually indicative as to the play of our, the student-athletes we work with. And then yeah. how, what can we do better to handle their welfare are, are two things that are, are really huge points and things that I think that at times maybe, you know, overlooked for the tradition. Yeah. yeah, those are all good, all good things, all good things to think about. But yeah, Chris, I really appreciate the time tonight, man, and, and we'll get this up real soon. People are going to love it. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, well, thank you, man. We'll be in touch real soon. Great, thanks. And a huge thanks to Chris Corfus for being so open and honest and, and just candid with his sharing today. I can't thank him enough for spending the time with us and, and talking about everything, you know, where he sees exercise, different exercises he's seen carry over when it comes to actual sprint performance. And of course, you know, the whole story behind RPR, I think, is something that all of us are really interested in right now. So I can't thank him enough. This was really an, an awesome talk. And as always, guys, if you enjoyed it, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. Again, just try to share great information with all the great coaches out there. And, you know, guys, if, if you did like it, please hit that like button. Please leave a review on iTunes or Podomatic. That way we can, we can keep spreading the word and keep letting people know what we're trying to do here when it comes to the content. And as always, guys, thank you for everything you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.